0: Let me pray for us, and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you that we could gather together this morning. I thank you that we can open your word together. I pray, Lord, uh, that uh, through the study of this word, that your son, Jesus Christ, might be glorified and magnified in our presence today, that we might see and behold him, that we might call him our beloved, even as he is your beloved. Uh, We thank you for giving us your life-giving word, and we thank you for encouraging us through the Holy Spirit, to read it, to understand it, and to know it. I pray that you would do all of these things for your sake. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we have gotten all the way to the end of the writing section. Last time we focused on Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles as the the final books of the Old Testament. My Bible's over here, so... (laughs) Uh, as the final books of the Old Testament, uh, there is some evidence that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles were collected as a group together and were actually distributed among different synagogues and different believers uh, during the Old Testament time. So they were gathered together, collected together. Uh, and so there is. I guess a scholarly assumption that these three books are meant to be read together and understood in connection with each other. And I think what lends itself to that, to that argument uh, is the structure of these books, how Ezra, do you all remember how Ezra begins? What does Ezra begin with? This famous historical, the, this incredibly important historical event. Does anybody remember? you can look at the title, the heading at the first part of Ezra. The Decree of Cyrus. Ezra begins with the Decree of Cyrus. King Cyrus uh, is uh, uh, King Cyrus of Persia, well-known historical figure. There have been biographies written about him uh, because we have so much historical information about him. King Cyrus, he makes this decree. What's the substance of the decree? Do you all remember? Does anybody remember what the substance of the decree, the content of the decree? That's right, that God's people can return and rebuild the temple. And so that's what Ezra does. He is uh, a priest, uh, and he is tasked to go and rebuild the temple. And so they do that. Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and the miracles that happen, uh, how God accomplishes that. And then you get the the last book of the Old Testament. And again, when I say last book of the Old Testament, this is the way that Jesus would have read his Old Testament. This is the way that Paul would have read it. If they were reading book by book by book, they would have read Chronicles as the last book. There was a 400 or so year period between the end of the writing of Chronicles in the first book of the New Testament. It's called the Intertestamental Period. And it's during that period that, the, that what we know of as Second Te- Temple Judaism really came to life. Uh, Second, Second Temple Judaism is an attempt to not repeat the mistakes of the First Temple people of God. And so, during that 400-year period, you have scholars and rabbis and people coming and saying, okay, what mistakes did we make before? How can we avoid those mistakes? And so, by the time you get to Jesus in in the second temple period, um, you get four different groups that have sprung up that are basically dominating the religious, political, social landscape, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The Zealots and the Estnes. So you get these four different groups, uh, and you understand that the Pharisees were attempting to not repeat the mistakes of the past. And what did they do? They they attempted to set more and more laws up to make sure they didn't cross any of the boundaries that God said not not to cross. So, That's just some historical information just for you to work off of as we jump into Chronicles. But Chronicles was, it was the last book that they read. Turn, turn to Chronicles if you're not there yet. And I said this last time, but it was two weeks ago, so you've probably forgotten what we said. How does Chronicles begin? What does Chronicles begin with? I can't hear a thing y'all are saying. (laughs) Genealogy, good. It begins with a genealogy. How many chapters of a genealogy are there? You can just flip through. Nine chapters, nine chapters of a genealogy. This is wonderful devotional material. If you want Advent reading, um, sit down and read through these nine chapters day by day. Just take a name, take a name every minute or so and just reflect upon that name. Now, look, okay, I need you to do some work for me. How does it begin? How does the genealogy begin? Who does it begin with? Adam. Okay. Now, who was Adam? First man. First man created by God. How does it end? How does the genealogy end? Go back to chapter 9. How does it end? Okay. The son, yeah. Um. This, is whole, this whole section, ha- though, I need to step back a little bit. This whole section is really about David, okay? It's really about David. And look at chapter 10, and you begin to see kind of the, the history of David and the line of David. What's the point of the genealogy? Why nine chapters worth of names that we can't pronounce? Is there any significance to, of, of these chapters to contemporary Christians I mean the answer to that question is yes because God inspired it he put it in his Bible he wants us to read these things and we do a disservice to God's word when we say oh I can't read them I don't understand I don't know what they're for so what I want to do is try to teach you what is it for why are these names there what do you think What's the purpose? Show the genealogy of Christ. Okay, show the genealogy of Christ. That's a good answer, yeah. Any other guesses? Okay. I mean, possibly, although I don't know that they had that in mind. Probably, but it is helpful to see, yeah. I mean, there is a... uh, yeah, you can trace the lineage back through all these names, yeah. Okay, so much like giving credibility through the line, yeah, through, uh, of Christ through the line of David. Um, modern scholars, or, or at least contemporary scholars going back to the 19th century, have argued that Chronicles is all about propping up the Davidic dynasty. That's the whole point. That's what they argued. It's all about propping up the Divinic Divinic dynasty. We'll talk a little bit more about that. All right. Any other guesses as to why these chronologies are important? What are they for? Yeah. So what you begin to see in Genesis chapter 3 is that there is going to be a seed that is going to come forth. And that seed is going to come through one family. And so this traces the line or the seed through that one family. And it goes, where does it begin? Adam, at the beginning. It begins all the way back at the beginning. And then it goes all the way through through the most important characters in the Old Testament. The, the most important people that traces the line, the seed through all of them. Here's, here's my main point. If you want to quickly um, explain and give background information regarding the history of God's people, a genealogy is the best, fastest, most concise way to do it. Now, you and I didn't grow up with all of these different names, but if you were growing up in a Jewish family you would grow up hearing these names constantly. And as soon as you heard the name, the history of those names would come back to you. And you would be thinking, oh, that's this person, that's this person, this person. What the genealogy is doing is it's connecting the dots for you, and it's taking you through the entire history of the Old Testament leading up to David and his son Solomon. Genealogy is history. Now, why would that be important at the end of the Old Testament? because you need to know what you're going to cover or what you've already covered. If you wanna do it quickly, here's nine chapters of names that do that for you, okay? Now, just remember that. Next time you're reading through a genealogy, it's meant to be read as history. It's meant to catch you up in the story about where you've been and, and basically also where you're going, all right? So nine chapters in Chronicles of history, and then you begin in chapter 10 with whom? David. You begin with the line of David and King David, and it goes through and talks about uh, David and everything that David does. Um, it leaves out some information. Chronicles leaves out some information. What information do you think it leaves out? <laughs> it leaves out stuff that makes David look bad, right? It does. There's a lot of things that it leaves out. However, and so scholars will point to this and say, see, this is just propping up that Davidic dynasty. It's leaving out all the bad stuff. Except that if you do a close reading of it, you understand that there are times when David looks really, really bad in, in the book of First Chronicles. Um, okay, so First Chronicles, you have David. You have chapter after chapter of, of David. Look at First Chronicles through to the very end Uh, basically around chapter 22. What begins in chapter 22 of 1 Chronicles? Right, the temple building. What God does is God comes to David. David says, God, I want to, Yahweh, he says, Yahweh, I want to build you a house. And God says, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. David, you're not the one that builds houses. I am the one that builds houses. And he says, David, one of your sons is going to sit on the throne forever and ever. And he makes these grand promises to David. I believe that's in chapter 16. Um, But so he makes these grand promises. And then what does David do? What does David do? He does what? He begins making preparations for the temple. Now, I haven't read a lot of books on Chronicles. I haven't read a lot of done a lot of research on this. But, it, but in teaching through Chronicles, I think David made a huge mistake in Chronicles and in First in uh, in uh, Second Samuel. I think there's a huge mistake that David makes. And the mistake is when he hears God say, "One of your sons is going to sit on the throne." he immediately assumes it's one of his own natural biological children. And his sons think that as well, because you see that Absalom and some of his other sons get into a big war over who that son is going to be. Who is going to be the promised Messiah? They begin to fight over that. And ultimately, who is the son that David chooses? Solomon is the son. That's right. But God tells David don't build a temple, and immediately, what does David do? He begins making plans to build the temple. And he's saying, oh, I'm not going to build it. I'm not going to do it. But you said, God, my son is going to do it. Here are the plans that I'm going to give to my son for the temple that he's going to build. I'm not doing it, but my son Solomon is going to do it. At no point, if you go back and read uh, 2 Samuel 8, and I think it's First Chronicles 16, where God makes this promise to David, at no point does He say Solomon is going to do this. At no point does He make the promise to David that Solomon is going to be the one. And let me ask the question, is Solomon the one that God chooses to redeem His people through? What kind of king is Solomon? Do you remember? He he bowed down to pagan gods, he built temples to pagan gods, he had multiple wives, he had great riches, he had an army full of horses from Egypt, which is where the kings of of Israel were not meant to get horses from. Solomon did almost everything wrong. Now, I'm not saying that he was not uh, part of God's plan, that he was not part of God's, um, that he was not also redeemed by God and and all of these things, I'm saying that David made a mistake. David assumed that Solomon was the one, and Solomon assumed that as well. Uh, I don't have time to look at it into it, but, it, but as you transition from 1 Chronicles into Second Chronicles, you have David dying and giving instructions to Solomon, and Solomon taking the reins and going ahead and building the temple. And then in 2 Chronicles... At the, um, what do they call that? At the, um, what is it called? The ribbon cutting of the, of the temple. What's the name for it? Uh, dedication, thank you. It's not the ribbon cutting, but you know what I meant. The dedication of the temple, they have this massive celebration. It takes, it takes a week to do it, and then they have add on two extra weeks because it's such a great celebration. And then at the end of all of that, Solomon goes to sleep, and he has a vision, the Lord comes to him in a vision, and he says, Solomon, I tell you what, the, the language, the, the way that he says it is really fascinating. He says, I will allow you to worship me at this temple. I have chosen that this place will be the place that you worship me, until you mess up. It's fascinating that he does that. He is saying, you've gone through all this trouble, but I never told you to do this. I will allow you to worship me here for a little while. But then I'm going to remove my spirit because y'all are going to stop worshiping me the way that you should. And that's exactly what happens. Go back and read uh, at that point where, I think, it's, I think it's 2 Chronicles chapter 8 or chapter 9, somewhere in there, where God appears to Solomon and he says, I have chosen this place for you to worship me it was not a done deal that that was the place where God was going to be worshipped. Because before that, God said, I don't need a temple to be worshipped in. Okay. Well, ultimately, Solomon comes, Solomon builds the temple, and then the temple is, uh, or Solomon after him, his two lines split, and you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, and you have the sordid sorted affair of, uh, of all of the the terrible things that happen once the kingdom is split, um, all because of Solomon's unfaithfulness, okay? Um, ultimately, or, and it traces the line of David. If it's a pro-Davidic um, book, they sure do mention the idolatry of David's line a good deal. <laughs> um, and the whole point of this, as wisdom, as writing is to, meant to, sh- is to show you um, it's meant to give you hope in the midst of massive discouragement when the leaders are failing, when the kingdom looks like it's been torn apart, when the kingdom of God looks like it's been torn apart. Um, and ultimately, you get to the very end, and we're going to focus now at the very end of Chronicles, so turn to the end. Jerusalem is is sacked, all the people of Jerusalem are taken away, um, and then you get uh, chapter 36, verse 22. Once again, the proclamation, proclamation of Cyrus. This is that structure that I was talking about. The book ends. It begins with the proclamation, and it ends with the proclamation. So through these three books, history hasn't gone very far, and that's kind of the point. There's not a whole lot of history that has taken place in between here, and God's people haven't changed very much. So what are we meant to learn? Let's, let's look. 2 Chronicles uh, 36, 22. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it down in writing. I want to stop there. Um, it's an interesting thing that they, they're giving you I think Ezra wrote this. We don't know exactly who wrote this, but Ezra's a prime candidate for for the person who wrote this. They're giving lots of historical information about how the Persians operate in those few verses. Um, So here's Cyrus, this great king. It's his first year, and he makes this proclamation. And we have historical record of this proclamation, of him making this proclamation. Why do we have an historical record of this from Cyrus, king of Persia? What do you think? Because he wrote it down. He had it written down that this was going to happen. And so we have this record of him writing these things down. I just think that's interesting because it once again verifies, gives the, it shows the veracity of the historical record of the Old Testament. We don't need it to believe it, but it's helpful to have So here you have this pagan king, Cyrus, claiming that the Lord, he's using the covenant name Yahweh, so there's something about Yahweh, he knows about Yahweh, and he's claiming that Yahweh has done something, uh, uh, well, we're going to see what the proclamation is in a moment, but he's done something, and he has it written down, and that's important because the Persians had a law that if a king just made a proclamation, then it didn't have to be carried out. If he would stand up in the morning and go out on his balcony and declare to the world that everyone had to have scrambled eggs and breakfast for breakfast or scrambled eggs and bacon for breakfast then you could listen to it if you wanted to but you didn't have to but if the Persian king had it written down if it went into the historical record of the kings then it had to be obeyed it had to be followed um, and so, here's someone operating off of the understanding that this is a really important thing. The king is making this proclamation, and he's having it written down, okay? Let's look and see what the proclamation is. Verse 23, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Does that sound familiar? All right. Uh, he is mimicking the, uh, the language of the prophets, By saying, thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. But now he is putting himself in that place to say, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now this is fascinating stuff. Um. Okay, so you have this ruler of Persia. Do y'all know anything about the Persian Empire? What do you know about the Persian Empire? Brutal, Brutal? what else? Everything, <laughs> right. The Persians took over everything. Persia uh, and, and the capital of Persia was the center of the world, the center of economics, the center of, um, of academics. The center of culture and society it was the center of everything and here is this persian king saying yahweh has told me to build him a temple where in jerusalem and what is jerusalem relative to the capital of persia it's, it's nothing it's far away it's in this backwater place that very few people have ever heard of and no one really wants to go there. And yet, the king of Persia says, I want, I'm going to fund the building of this place because God has given me all of these kingdoms and I want to do this for him. Isn't that fascinating? It's fascinating also because the prophecy was that one of the sons of David would rebuild the temple, but here now... You have this Persian king saying that he's going to rebuild the temple. Wait a second, that's weird. That should give us pause, but we can pause and then move on. All right, so the Persian king says, I'm going to build this temple for God in Jerusalem. Um, And then look at what he says. Whoever is among you of all of his people... Notice, the, notice the, the language, notice the way that it, it's written. Whoever is among you of all of his people, this is written in, uh, it, it's, it's the plural. He's saying of all of God's people, all of you that have been captured, taken in by Persia, all of you that are in the Persian empire, all of you, uh, all of you, I'm doing this for you. So keep that in your mind. All of y'all, basically is what he's saying. All of y'all. And then look at what happens. May the Lord, his God, be with him. Remember what I said a couple weeks ago. This is bad grammar. And bad grammar makes good theology. Because he's switching from the plural, he's going from all of y'all to now focusing on the singular. Okay. May the Lord, his God, be with him. And then he does something that would grate on the nerves of everyone who understands in in Aramaic or Hebrew. He says, let him go up. He ends a sentence with a verb. He ends the sentence. uh, It is up, up is a preposition. You're right. But in the Hebrew, it's one word. Go up is one word and it's a verb. Verb, uh, in Hebrew, verbs are meant to come first. And almost always, when you're reading Hebrew, the verb comes first, the noun comes second. But here, he switches the order, and he says, "Let him go up." And 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 if you were a Hebrew or somebody reading Hebrew, you would hear that and go, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! That, did, that didn't write. You're not supposed to end that way." And we have seen this before. We've seen this kind of uh, of sentence construction before in Hebrew, and it doesn't. It's hard to wrap your head around it. We saw this once um, in uh, Exodus chapter 2, whenever God's people are crying out for help and it says, and God knew. And there's this weird, like, just this finality to that. You go, whoa, that's, that's weird. What did God know? And here you have King Cyrus saying, let him go up. What's the significance of that? Let me suggest to you that this is not simply King Cyrus saying, you can go home, go ahead and go. But this is actually language that is used in war. This is language that is used in battle. And this is how we know that King Cyrus is, or, or, has been prompted by the Spirit to write this because King Cyrus probably didn't understand what he was saying. This is language that was used Of armies as they were going to battle now keep your fingers there and turn to judges let me show you let me show you how this works judges chapter 1 you see this all over in the history section but in judges chapter 1 you see this a couple different times Um, you see it in Joshua a couple different times you see it in Exodus a few different times Look there in Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Who shall go up? And then the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into to their hand. That happens over and over where the people inquire of the Lord and they say, Who shall go up? And the Lord comes back and says, Judah shall go up. Go up to do what? Go up to fight. This is language that is used of battle. All right. So, if you're hearing this from King Cyrus, and and as the, the, the writer here is writing these things out, it ends on this language of let him go up. And your assumption is let him go up to do what? To go up to fight. Not just rebuild the temple, but to go up to fight. And notice who it is that's going up. It's a him, right? Remember back in Genesis three fifteen, There is one man who's going to come out. And what is he gonna do? He's gonna go up and he's gonna fight for God's people against the serpent. You see how all of these lines are being tied back together? And the writer here at the very end of the last book of the Old Testament is saying, Let me tie all of these things back together. We still need that one man to come up and to fight for us. Where is he? And then how long until you hear from God? 400 years of silence. You don't hear anything from God for 400 years. And the people are trying to figure out, what do we do? What do we do? We need Him to come. We need Him to come. Where is He? Now, what's the first book of the New Testament? Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1. This is like, the bell is still ringing 400 years prior to this. Who's going to go up and fight? Who is it going to be? And then Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Who's going to go up and fight for God's people? It's going to be Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his last name. Christ is his title. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that God has chosen to fight for his people. Remember that with David? David was the king that God chose to fight for his people. And now the new David, the better David, King Jesus, is the one that that God has chosen to fight for his people finally, ultimately, to finish the job that was started in Genesis 3, chapter 15. Now, what follows after that? What follows after Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? What do you get? You get a genealogy. Um, How many books of the Bible do you think begin with a genealogy? Think about it. There are 66 books of the Bible. How many books begin with a genealogy? Three? But, ah, aha, it's good thinking, but, but you're wrong. So, <laughs> so, there are actually only two books that begin with the genealogy. You're right, but Luke doesn't begin with the genealogy. What are those two books? Chronicles and... Matthew. This is why you have to have Chronicles at the end of the Old Testament. Because the answer to Chronicles is Matthew. When Matthew sits down to write his book, he is writing the book in answer to all of the different things that come up in Chronicles. Because Chronicles ultimately is a book of failure. The whole thing from beginning to end is the failure of God's people to do what God asked them to do over and over and over and over again. It's not about the success or the propping up of David's dynasty. It's about the failure of David's dynasty to do anything for itself and about the need for the one that God has chosen to come forward to fight for his people. And Matthew writes his gospel account as a way to answer all of that failure. But now Chronicles looks back over all of the history of the Old Testament. And so in a sense, Matthew is writing about how about how Jesus is the answer to all of that failure, not just from Chronicles, but from all of the history, going all the way back. And so that's why you get the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. He goes back to Abraham. And then he takes you through this genealogy, three different uh, sections of, or three different uh, uh, sections of 14 different names. 14 times three is what? What? 42, all right? Um, There's something significant about that number. I can't remember what it is right now, but it's actually, no, I I do know what it is. Uh, 14 divided by 2 is 7, 7 times 2. And so it's like 7, Matthew is using the number 7 as a way to show uh, perfection, to show that Jesus is the perfect answer to all of the issues that were brought forth uh, in the Old Testament. Jesus is the answer, and Jesus must be the answer. Now, I don't have time to go through um, all of Matthew. I would love to go through all of Matthew, but I don't have time to do it. Um, Over the next 30 to 40 years, we will look at the book of Matthew in detail. Um, At some point, we will do that. But we can't do it today. But look at chapter, um, let's see. Look at chapter 5, verse 17, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That the law, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. So he's thinking about this in terms of this threefold, three-fold division. This is the wisdom literature that teaches you how to live in light of the covenant. But he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to take away any of the law that God has given. I have not come to take away any of the things that happened in the prophets or the things, the judgments that God said would come in the prophets. But what does he come to do? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. fascinating because the Pharisees were taking God's law and putting extra requirements on God's law. And Jesus is saying, actually what they're doing is they're taking away from God's law by adding to it. It's fascinating what he says. He says, so your righteousness must exceed that even of the scribes and the Pharisees. You have to be even greater than them. But he uses that language, truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, I say to you. And then he goes on and expands the law, and makes it not just about physical things that you do, but he says also, everything that you do in your mind that's sinful is sin. And he says, you must be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Essentially saying to you, you can't do it. You can't fulfill this law. But the good news is there is one who has come to fulfill the law for you. And that's the whole story of, uh, of Matthew and what, what he came to do. Um, Turn to the very end of Matthew. Turn to the very end of Matthew. You get the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Most of you probably know this by heart. Um, 28, turning at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Does that sound like anybody we just read? See what Jesus is doing? He's using the words of Cyrus and he's saying, Cyrus wasn't the great king. Guess who is? All authority in heaven and on earth, not just the kingdoms of the earth, like Cyrus says, but all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And the point there is that Jesus is the better Cyrus. Jesus is the better one who brings his people all the way home. So what do you do? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The point is this, Jesus is the answer to everything that comes before. He's the answer to all of the failure of God's people. He's the answer to the, pro- uh, the prophets and the law He's the better Moses, he's the better Israel, he's the better one and that's Matthew's point. And if you, if you take Chronicles and you stick it here at the end of 1 first ki- first and 2 Kings you miss the point. That's the whole point. It's all about Jesus. Remember? It's about two things, Jesus and the kingdom of God. And all of the Old Testament is driving the point home that you need this king, the one that God has chosen. Now, That's the Old Testament. We're finished with the Old Testament, except we're never really finished with the Old Testament because Matthew is all about the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. And then what's the next book you get? Luke? Or, I'm sorry, Mark? And then Luke? And then John? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yep. We spent the first two weeks talking about that. (laughs) But why is it the way that it is? Um, Well, here's some good news. We are beginning to go back to this. Um, uh, My professor, Miles Van Pelt, he is beginning to popularize this. Again, this isn't new stuff. This is stuff that is old stuff that we need to recover. So it's beginning to to show back up, and it's beginning to be published. Our Bibles are beginning, some Bibles are beginning to be published with this order. Um, But the reason why is, um, can you imagine going to buy a Bible and opening it up and it being in this order? And you're going, wait a second, it's all out of order. Because it takes a long time to explain why we should go back to this order. No, so the Latin Vulgate is the reason why it got all out of order. The Septuagint is mostly in this order. You have you have some examples where in um, in in different regions uh, of the uh, different regions they had slightly different order. So some actually do put Ruth at the end of Judges, um, and then I can't remember. Some put like Lamentations in a different place, but by and large up to at least the first, first century and then even into the third century AD, most um, of the Hebrew lists that you see of the Old Testament are in this order, by and large, okay? Um, so that didn't answer your question, but go back and listen to the first couple. <laughs> um, so all right, any other questions or comments? What I'm going to do next time is I'm going to um, fill this out, explain these. From this point on, the New Testament is in the correct order, okay? So if you've memorized the books of the New Testament, great. You're going to do good on the test as it comes up. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the rest are in the order that they are meant to be in. But I want to begin to connect the dots for, show you how this is covenant, how this is covenant history, and then how these are covenant life. Yep. I didn't hear a word. category that is Yeah. Yes, yes. So, so what you have here is, is, you know, Hebrews, which comes back here, um, does a good job of dividing these things out and showing how, you know, the old law came through Moses and the new law comes through Jesus or the old covenant, new covenant distinction that's made. Um, and so, yeah, covenant theology is involved with that in understanding how the covenants operate. Um, but yes, this is, uh, this is law. And what Jesus does, that, that's why I highlighted that in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus comes and expands the law. He doesn't, he doesn't lessen the effect of the law, but he actually expands it because he's saying, I'm the better Moses. I'm the one that actually gives you the law and I fulfill the law for you. Moses could just give it to you. He couldn't fulfill it for you. Okay. So, and then here, same thing. You're going to get uh, this is the history of how God's people did at keeping keeping the law and then the judgments that follow. Well, in the book that comes here, the covenant history of God's new covenant people, how are they at keeping the covenant and what are the judgments that follow or the blessings that follow because of it. That's that's all here. And then you get all of this practical information about how we are to live our life in light of the new covenant realities uh, that Jesus has fulfilled, accomplished for us. And so you get all this practical information. Probably this is, uh, you know, 98% of all statistics are made up on the spot. So here's one of those. 75% of all evangelical churches preach out of these books. Most of the sermons that you've ever heard over your lifetime have been out of just these books. Why? Because they're practical, because they're easier to understand. Um, but they have, and they are helpful for us, but if we're not going through all of God's Word to see how all of God's Word fits together, we're missing uh, the, the fullness of what God has for us. So, I, I really have to end, but I want to ask one more question. So what books do you think these are? The Epistles, that's right. Paul's writings, the, the writings of the Apostles. Um, All of those, that's right. Okay, any other questions? What's the Bible about? Jesus and the kingdom of God. Good, all right. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can uh, now go into worship and we pray, Father, that you uh, you would accept our worship because of Jesus, because he has gone up and fought for us, because he is the one that you have chosen to be our redeemer. Father, I pray that our faith and our hope would be in him and not in ourselves. We thank You for the gift of Your Spirit that, uh, that enlivens our heart and directs our attention and our focus on Him. Receive us now in Christ, we pray it in His name.